Hey, podcast fans, I've got to talk to you about drinking water. As an archaeologist, I've been on surveys where we had to drink three to five liters of water every day. That's 1.3 gallons, just to basically not die. Sometimes that water just doesn't hydrate you as quickly as you're using it. That's why we've partnered with Liquid IV. The small packets make it easy to take one with you to work, to work out, or on any adventure. I like the strawberry lemonade and lemon lime ones the best. Just put one stick of Liquid IV into 16 ounces of water and get hydrated two times faster than with just water alone. And now with our partnership, you can get 20% off when you go to liquidiv.com and use the code TAS at checkout. That's 20% off anything you order when you shop Better Hydration Today using promo code TAS at liquidiv.com. You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. You're listening to the Archaeology Show. TAS goes behind the headlines to bring you the real stories about archaeology and the history around us. Welcome to the podcast. Hello and welcome to the Archaeology Show, episode 250. On today's show, we talk about an early Chinese saddle, Paleolithic rock art, and us. Wow. Let's <laughs> dig a little deeper and use some of that horsepower. <laughs> Welcome to our last show in America. <laughs> well, actually, are we recording like one segment in America and then another segment in Mexico? <laughs> we do all, we do this all at once. <laughs> yeah. We're like having a very behind week. We've had lots of RV trouble this week, so yeah, it um, has definitely taken away from our time to do other things while we're tr- troubleshooting issues with the RV. However, yeah. we're good to go now. Yeah, we spent the last two days trying to get our inverter working. Yeah. And turns out it was fine. It was a switch. It was a switch. Yeah. So that's good because the really expensive thing is still functioning and the hopefully cheap thing to replace yeah. that we were able to bypass for now is is going to be okay for a month while we're If in you ever want to learn how to troubleshoot electronic equipment, it's almost always power. And if it's not power, <laughs> it's something mechanical. Yeah. So, um, and that's RV life for you too. Yeah. I think I was ready to quit RV life <laughs> two nights ago. <laughs> <though>. <laughs> I was like sitting here in the dark cause we had no power and yeah. Uh, anyway. Anyway. Yeah. You know, you know who else had no power? <laughs> the ancient Chinese. Well, hold on. But they had horsepower. <laughs> they, <laughs> like everything you just said is wrong, but yes, let's go for it. <laughs> Actually, it's not. It's not wrong. Totally. Yeah. So this first article is called Ancient Chinese Saddle Surprises Archaeologists. We get to be surprised today. I'm so Yay. excited. <laughs> because every week I feel like we do an article where we're surprised or that it's shocked a gender or, thing. Yeah, yeah. I know. Uh, real quick, we've linked to the Apple News article yes. because the Apple News interface is really cool if you have Apple News. Yeah, we just prefer to read from there. So we were like, yeah. why don't we just start linking to those? Because, you know, plenty of other people might be using Apple News too. So, yeah. Right. Also, if you do happen to be on an Apple device and you click on the Nat Geo article, it's behind a paywall. But if you use a little reader tool in the Safari browser window, mm-hmm. then it gets everything away and actually actually takes away their pay window, too. It did, yeah. A lot of websites are getting around that these days, and the article just stops short, and you can't actually read it. However, I guess Nat Geo hasn't done that yet. (laughs) Guess not. Yeah. All right, what's going on here? Yeah, so this is a saddle that was found in the Yanghai Cemetery in the Turpan district of Xinjiang in northwestern China. That's all wrong. So sorry for all the pronunciation. I feel like I did, like, 75% okay. (laughs) So this cemetery is Iron Age, and the saddle has been dated to between 700 and 400 BCE, which is, because I need this number for my brain, about 2,700 years old, which is so old for a piece of leather, right? Yeah. (laughs) 
So the Yanghai people were mostly sedentary people that herded goats and sheep. And as you can imagine, it is unusual to find the organic remains of a saddle or other riding equipment, like things that are made of leather, basically, because they, yeah. they decay or leather or hides or whatever. They, they just don't last. Leather usually. has a, because it's like cured and stuff, has a little bit more chance of lasting than I, something yeah. like fibers from a, yeah. you know, a rope or something like that. True. So that's pretty cool. Yeah. And we could find something like that. Also, the shape of the saddle is... Like, I wouldn't have known that was a saddle. And yeah, this is, it is interesting. Yeah, this is why, as archaeologists, when we go out to sites and things, you can't just like, oh, if it looks old, I'm going to record it. Mm-hmm. You know, I can't remember if I've mentioned on this show, but there was, I'll never forget one project I did in Northern California where we had a Native American monitor and we actually asked him because he was a kind of a scholar of their history in that mm-hmm. area and he was really well, well studied. And he told us what we could expect to find and what they look like, because these ear toggles were the biggest thing that they find mm. up there. That and, mm-hmm. and those are just like bars and stuff that go in your ear. Mm-hmm. But when they're in the archaeological record, they could just like a they could look like a smooth river rock. Oh, yeah. Okay. And yeah. if you don't know what you're looking for, you might not see it. You might not see it. Yeah. Yeah. And I would. I mean, obviously, this would have been a human made artifact, but I wouldn't have probably known it was a saddlehead yeah. so had I not had the training. The shape is very unique, and we'll get to a little bit more on that in a minute. Yeah. But they did know that people were using horses in this region. So we have to make the distinction between horse riding and horse for labor and horse for use because they found like pieces of bridles and bits, but those are like made of metal, I think, Mm -hmm. or other materials that would last longer. They are now. I don't know if they were 2,700 years ago in China. Well, but they found, they've found more of those. Ah, But the thing is, is that those don't mean saddle or riding necessarily because you have those if you're leading a horse around too or using it for some kind of work so this is the first evidence of like saddled riding which is Mm -hmm. really cool that's pretty neat you can always infer that kind of thing is happening but until you actually see it yeah exactly yeah Yeah. and until this discovery the oldest known saddles were from the Pazarik culture in the Altai area of Kazakhstan and Russia, which mm. is just a little north of this area in China. So they're actually not that far away from each other, like regionally speaking, very different countries today. But back then they, they weren't crazy far from each other. Yeah. And those saddles were dated to the fifth century BCE. Mm-hmm, so they're so, a little, little younger. Yeah. yeah. Now, the lead author on this study, Patrick Wortman of the University of Zurich, thinks that even though this saddle that they found in China is older, horse riding probably still originated with the Pazarek culture mm. to the north. He thinks that they it came in from the north to the south. Yeah. I like this quote from him in the article. And he says... Horse riding was probably introduced to northwest China from the Pazarek region, and it's possible that saddles also arrived that way. So yeah. there you go. That's that's what he says. So that's one assumption we're making that's going to lead to the assumption this article is is debunking right here. Well, not really. There's just two assumptions I'm noticing here, but they're not yeah. mentioning this one because I think I feel like archaeologists say that a lot too. If they don't have evidence of something somewhere, but adjacent, they do have evidence of it, and maybe you know. Maybe that culture is older or something like that. There's always the assumption that that technology or information or idea transmitted to the other culture. Now, there's a massive body of work on the Mm -hmm. transmission of culture and ideas, Mm -hmm. but it doesn't necessarily mean that, right? Yeah, 
Like maybe somebody went over there and said, hey, that looks like a good idea. And then I'm guarantee there's wild horses. Yeah. And they just, you know, I mean, you can figure it out. Yeah. It doesn't have to be, it, oh, it these guys started it and gave it to them. Very much could have been independently developed. And I think a critique I have of this article is that it didn't go into detail or flesh out why he thinks that even though this saddle is older, the technology still originated somewhere where we don't have evidence of the older saddles. Mm-hmm. And I, I wish there was a little bit more reasoning or ideas behind why he feels that way. Because, yeah, you're right. Like, who's to say it didn't develop independently? Or, you know, maybe it was developed in this China, you know, culture <laughs> and then sent to Kazakhstan. Like, there's, I don't know. I you, I would like to see more of the reasoning. I'm sure there is yeah. a reason. It just wasn't explained in this article. You know what I just thought of, too? Archaeologists behave often much like the control room guy in the Chernobyl series. Was that on Netflix or HBO or something? HBO, I think. The guy, they kept saying, oh, the reading is is this. And he's like, oh, that's not bad. He's like, I've, he, they're like <laughs> as they're saying, that's as high as the meter goes. He's just he's like, like cutting like, them oh, off and moving fine. on. Yeah. yeah. Well, how high does the meter for leather go? Yeah. Right? Like how far back does horse riding mm-hmm. and, and these saddles actually go? Does it go beyond our capability to see it in the archaeological record? Right. And because of the organic nature of these yeah. artifacts, it, it could go back a lot further and yeah. we wouldn't know. We are relying on these super special preservation you know, things that happen to give us more evidence, but because it requires very arid, in this case, preservation or some other type mm-hmm. of really great preservation, it doesn't happen very often. We're going to end up with holes, which is it makes it hard to fill in. You can get evidence from the art. They cover that a little bit in the article. There's art showing people on horseback from China, but I think it's it's later. You know, it's not as early as this. So I mean, it's not that much later. There's a picture in the Apple News article. Yeah. Of a basically a bronze statue with a person riding yeah. a horse with a saddle on it. Yeah. And it's from 1191 to 1148 BC. Yeah. So like about a thousand years later. But so we could hope to find art. We could hope to find more mm-hmm. pieces of equipment that would give us a better idea that people were riding. So there's other evidence that could be found. But to find these saddles themselves is really special. And there just aren't that many of them. So that's cool. But what's the apparent shocking bit about all oh, this? Oh, yeah. Well, I feel like it's pretty shocking that they found an older saddle in an area that they didn't expect to find an older saddle. But anyway, that was pretty shocking. (laughs) But the other surprise here was that the the saddle was found in the grave with female remains. Mm -hmm. And it was a female remains that were sort of dressed for riding, too. Mm -hmm. Apparently, they had a lot of really great organic remains in this grave. And of course, the assumption had been that horseback riding was reserved for military and specifically men in the military. Sure. And this is a woman. She was not military as far as we can tell and was probably like doing, you know, herding and things for her for her communities. It makes you realize that horseback riding might have been much more common amongst all of the people in this region rather than just the military, which is really cool to to break that assumption. Yeah. I like the fact that this is so old. Mm-hmm. Like it's it's one of the oldest that they found, right? Yeah. So and there's a woman riding it. So like yeah. it's not even like women evolved into riding this thing, no, you know, culturally. No, no. It's probably like everything we've experienced, there's this equality that we just don't realize is there because we haven't found as many examples of it in the archaeological record and because the people who, you know, discovered most of the original 
early part of the archaeological record that formed all our textbooks were old stodgy men. <laughs> right. You know, they so they're making assumptions. these assumptions. Yeah. yeah. Even if there was nothing to specify gender, they would have just been, ah, this must have been a man. Yeah. So that's how they write it. Yeah. And totally. that's just how it becomes. Yeah. And so it makes you wonder if there's been any kind of reexamination of of the remains and graves that were found in the 1800s and early 1900s when they weren't as good at distinguishing between male and female remains because that might have more evidence for women writing if they were to do that. I don't know if it has been done. They didn't talk about it. Again, the critique of this article is it's a little bit light on the science Mm -hmm. itself because the other thing that I felt was missing was like, why don't we have more information about the woman that was in the grave? Sure. Now, maybe they haven't done the work yet and that's why, but like how old was she? You right. know, uh, was she found with in a larger cemetery area with other remains in a larger community? Like I would love to have more context around this burial, but they mm-hmm. don't they don't provide it. So, yeah, they do, however, give a great description of the saddle itself. Real quick, though. One thing I was thinking about was, you know, it's still possible that this was for military purposes, but that the woman was part of the military. Um, and I'm yeah, only saying that because not, right? the military does not just c- include people with weapons. The military is an entire entourage of people. And yeah. maybe she was, I mean, maybe she was a warrior. True. I'm not going to discount that, but she probably wasn't dressed as such. And they know mm-hmm. that. But it's possible that she was, you know, running out onto a battlefield or yeah. doing something to, you know, help people out or doing something, but it's needed possible. a horse to do it. Yeah. Yeah. yeah totally. So yep. anyway, it still could have been military is all I'm saying. Yeah. I mean, it yeah. definitely could have been. I do think that the area they found this in, because I said they didn't say anything about the community, but that's not entirely right. They said that she was found in the Yang High Cemetery mm. in the Turpin District in Xinjiang. Hmm. So it's a, a part of a, a community of okay. some sort. But again, they probably had some kind of military presence or right. forces of some sort to protect themselves, though. Yeah. Anyway. All right. We'll take a look at the pictures because they got some pretty good pictures of just the saddle yeah. and then also in the uh, burial itself. The saddle itself is made of two wing-shaped hides that were stitched together along the outer edges. It's stuffed with a mixture of straw, deer fur, and camel hair. That's mm-hmm. crazy. Yeah. And there's a section between the wings without stuffing known as the gullet, which is purposely left that way to relieve pressure on the horse's spine. So, so yeah, kind of like, I feel like it sort of like flopped over the horse yeah. and that well, center section was probably does. less comfortable for person a person to sit on probably, but it protected the horse. So yeah. there was uh, any sort of stirrup like thing when you're, when you're bobbing oh, on a horse, your butt's out of the saddle. I've literally never ridden a horse. Yeah. Well, you've seen it. I have. They just yeah. they do that little bouncing thing. They so they undulate with the horse. Yeah. I mean, I've watched Yellowstone, so yeah, well, <laughs> Okay, well, don't look at Kevin Costner's horse riding techniques. He's old. Oh, I thought he was pretty good. I don't yeah, know, but right. I don't know anything about riding a horse. Maybe not, not Kevin Costner's, uh, Harrison Ford. <laughs> oh, yeah, Harrison Ford. He's even older. Well, they're actually both old. Yeah, anyway. Look at the other guy, Cole. What's his face? He's my favorite. Oh, my God. Let's get out of here. <laughs> anyway, yes. So this gullet that is protecting the spine of the horse shows an increase in care for the health and comfort of the horse, which in turn would allow the traveler to go longer distances. So yeah. really it's like a, a win-win situation to sure. care for the horse a little bit more. And also like you don't come up with that idea right away. So this, this saddle must've been further down the line in, in the development of this. Yeah. There's, there must've been older ones is what you that had, tells me anyway. They had to realize early on, if they take care of the animal that they'll, you know, yeah. it'll take care of them. So, right. 
The materials that it was made from weren't anything special. They were common materials, inexpensive, but very well crafted. Just yeah. you can tell by the stitching and, and just the layout and all that stuff. Again, yeah. not the first saddle these people had ever made, for sure. It, I have a feeling this is stereotyping, but that everything the Chinese made was very well crafted. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> like, <laughs> it's probably a bit of a stereotype, but yeah. <laughs> well, just all this stuff is so good. You yeah. Know, even like really old. But So just a couple comments on sort of the horse riding debates <laughs> mm-hmm. in the archaeology world. So both when people began riding horses and when they started using saddles to ride those horses is like hotly debated topics, apparently. Yeah. So the earliest evidence for riding horses, either bareback or with just like a blanket or a mat for protection, that evidence is found in what is today Romania, Bulgaria, and Hungary around 3000 BCE. So just a little older than this saddle. So another 2000 years older than this saddle. Yeah. So obviously they started riding horses first without saddles, right? Mm -hmm. The saddle emerged later and they just haven't really filled in the timeline for when, where, how, who, which is something that this find is great with helping with, but they, it does seem like they just need more evidence to know who developed it first, if it was done independently, or if it moved from one region to another through like, you know, technology transmission. So Mm -hmm. anyway, yeah, I think there's just more, more work to be done and more debate to be had because, you know, archaeologists love a good debate. (laughs) Hey, there you go. All right. Well, that's about enough for this. So we're yeah, gonna... we kind of like waxed on about uh, saddles here, didn't we? I know. <laughs> it was a cool article, though. Well, let's ride on into the sunset and end up in Spain. And talk about some cave paintings. Back in a minute. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks. Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Welcome back to episode 250 of the Archaeology Show. And we're in Spain now talking about cave paintings. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, they're cave paintings. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> why, why are you so skeptical? <laughs> can you see the picture? Yeah, I can see the picture. The picture is kind of hard to see exactly what you're looking at, but yeah. yeah. Check out the article. We'll, we've linked to it as usual. It's in the Smithsonian and the name of it is Just How Old Are the Cave Paintings in Spain's Cova Donis? Yeah. And yeah, I mean, the picture is a little bit amorphous, but don't you always kind of find that like rock paintings are like yeah. that? And yeah, they can be a little abstract, yeah. especially older ones. We're not calling it rock art anymore, right? Like isn't art out? I've heard rock drawings. Rock and drawings. I've heard, I've heard uh, well, I've heard various things because art encompasses a, a connotation that it, there was some sort of, you know, artistic thing going on. Yeah. Like, but it could have just been communication. It could have been. It could have been spiritual. Yeah. It could have been yeah. any number of things. So you we just don't know. Calling it art is kind of adding something to it that you don't necessarily know right. for sure. But so this group of paintings is really, really cool. So yeah. Covadonis is close to Spain's eastern border in Valencia. And it was first explored in 2021 by Aitor Ruiz Redonado and his colleagues from the University of Zaragoza in Spain. First explored? Really? Yeah. Like this is the first exploration. Now, maybe people knew about it and it just hadn't been fully studied. Yeah. That they did not go into detail about that in the article. But yeah. Yeah. 
Uh, they found at least 110 paintings, drawings, and engravings in mm-hmm. this cave. So that's a fairly solid amount of of. I keep wanting to call it art, but we're not calling it art anymore. Drawings, I guess. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that's a solid amount of work that they found in this cave. Yeah, and most of this dates to at least 24,000 years ago, and we'll get to a little bit later why they think it's at least yeah. 24,000 years. Yeah. But the motifs that they found, and motifs is just shapes. It's yeah. A, it's a scientific word for shapes. Yeah, like there's yeah. panels, which would be a cluster of the drawings together, uh, and then motifs would be the different types of things within that I think kind the, of, right? I think the definition of panel depends on what kind of surface you're looking at. Oh, Panel, okay. in the context that I know I've done rock art research was, I mean, it literally is the face of a rock. You go to another yeah. face, that's another panel. Right. Right? If you got a solid face along here, you, you don't really have panels unless you can mm-hmm. define geologically, you like where the edges are. Mm. Anyway, it doesn't really matter. Um, But they found a whole bunch of stuff and the motifs that were on there included uh, female red deer, wild horses, and now extinct oxen. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So one unique thing about these paintings is that they were made with clay. And most rock rock art from this time, I'm going to just call it rock art, whatever. Yeah. Most rock art from this time was made using ochre or manganese. Those are just like the common materials yeah. that we find we find in paintings from, you know, Paleolithic times like this. Mm-hmm. However, this these were made with clay. So that made them different and interesting and like how in the world could clay even preserve on a cave wall? Right. So, yeah, there's something very special going on here and that is how it's how it preserved. Yeah. Well, this particular cave is karstic, they call it. And that just means that the walls are rich in calcium carbonate. Mm-hmm. And calcium carbonate acts as a natural sort of paint preservative. Now, they, I saw them write that in the article, but mm-hmm. like, like, how do you define the word paint in this context? Like, because they're literally just using clay and the clay is yeah. a different color than the wall and it dried. Mm-hmm. You know, imagine your hands getting all just like muddy and you're drawing on something, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, that's essentially what it sounds like what they did. Um, but there must have been some natural pigments and things in there because uh, it was opposite of the wall, basically. Yeah. And mm-hmm. uh, and then the wall, the calcium carbonate in the wall helped to um, preserve them, which we'll talk about. Yeah. Are you like objecting to using the word paint because that in- implies like art i guess a little bit or not necessarily to me paint is something that's prepared like ochre like you have to prepare red ochre right Mm -hmm. like you have to grind it up and and usually mix it with some water you don't have to i guess but usually that's like there's a preparation method paint is something that nature doesn't provide well it does sound like they were doing some kind of preparation because they it According to the researchers, they would likely have scooped the red clay from the floor or even, you know, pulled mm-hmm. it off the walls of the cave and then mixed it with the water that was also found in the cave to sort of make it into this. I imagine it was almost more pasty than paint like. Yeah. And then that's what they used to create the images on the wall. So I get I mean, that is kind of yeah. a preparation, right? To yeah. like purposely take the two things and put them together like that. Yeah. I guess I just don't think of clay as paint sometimes. I mean, it has a color. Yeah. Well, like think about like watching the, the pottery throw down <laughs> yeah. and like they use a slip is like basically a clay mm-hmm. that goes on and it, it acts as a paint essentially, especially yeah. after they fire it. Right. So it's, I think it's kind yeah. of like that, but well, through this whole process, they were recreating basically a minerally reinforced paint, they called it. Yeah. Because of the the uh, calcium carbonate mixing with the clay and the mm-hmm. minerals in the clay. Yeah. And just like hardened the crap out of it. Yeah. Like over time, the water that was still rich in car- calcium carbonate 
was dripping down the walls and Mm -hmm. over these paintings. And rather than washing them away, it like kind of sealed them in. And that sort of crusty stuff that was left on the paintings Mm -hmm. is what they're hoping to date when they do the like lab analysis of the paintings, which they have not done yet. So, yeah. Yeah. And since they haven't done that yet, you might be wondering, how do they know it's at least 24,000 years old, which is where we get into relative dating. Yes. And we do this a lot with different things. So relative dating is just dating something else that you know is true. And therefore this can't be, you know, it can't be earlier than this date Mm -hmm. because we know these things maybe were gone at this date. So what did they find? Yeah. So there is a, cave bear claw mark across one of the paintings Mm -hmm. and this is a species that went extinct 24,000 years ago but they were they were able to determine that the rock art predates the bear claw mark right so because of that they can say that while this had to have happened before the claire before the bear made the claw mark so therefore it is at least 24,000 years old because the bears went extinct so that's how they're doing that we use that to date rock art sometimes, too, just by what's depicted on the rock art. Mm-hmm. If they depict something that's now extinct, you're like, well, I mean, the rock art had to be at least as yeah. old enough for them to be alive. Yeah, it has to be at least <laughs> this old. And that's what you usually do with relative dating. You're saying yeah. it's at least this old, but it might be older because of the things around it or or whatever, right. like you said, they're depicting. It sounds like there were some other extinct animals that were included in the imagery as well. But I think the cave bear is the oldest thing. So they know it's at least this old. And, right. You know, I think the, the range, given what items are being depicted is actually like 21,000 to 40,000 years ago, the Mm. article said. So it could go back even further than that once they do this dating technique and if they get good solid dates from that. So it could be a lot older, which would be really, 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 really neat. So hopefully they get some good dates off of that. Cool. Yeah. All right. Well, with that, that's a relatively short one. So we're going to end it right there. But we talk about tools a lot in archaeology, don't we? We do. We talk about tools a lot. We're going to talk about some real tools in the next segment. (laughs) Back in a minute. (laughs) Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash aware. Welcome back to episode 250 of the archaeology show. I've got fans that love me saying that. No, they don't love it. It's annoying. Nobody loves it. I'm going to make a t-shirt that says the on the front and archaeology show on the back. (laughs) So you got to wait for it. <laughs> I don't know why I'm so against it. I think because you're annoying. <laughs> anyway, yeah. so we had, uh, we actually had a more than more than a couple of emails in, in our time doing this where people saying, well, we've had a few emails where people saying, don't talk about yeah. yourselves. You I guys you. are so chatty. Yeah. Why do you laugh so much? I hate you. Go away. And get, I'm like, that's cool. Bye. Get to the archaeology. You suck. <laughs> yeah. um, also, we've had some saying they wanted to know a little bit more about us and our lifestyle and what we do like mm-hmm. for a living. Right. And probably like our background and how we got to yeah. where we got where we're at. Right. Yeah. 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 So this isn't going to be like an extensive history, but no. um, we actually met on an archaeology project. My second. Well, actually, my first one, technically mm-hmm. my first CRM project and my and your second, second one? one. Yeah. If you want to count that meeting, I mean, we 
barely talked, yeah. but yeah. Randomly, we showed up on the next project together. Yeah. So really, it was my third, your second. Yeah. That's where we got to project know each other. That, yeah. That we really became yeah. friends. That was in downtown in Miami, Miami. Which I know we've talked about on this yes. show a lot because that site keeps coming up yeah. over and over again. It's so crazy. It was like almost 20 years ago that we worked on that project so together, crazy. but yeah. it's just, they keep developing down in that area in mm-hmm. Miami and they keep finding more things. And then it brings up the same, not the same site that we were on, but the same cluster of sites same that are culture. that, yeah, that are related to that culture yeah. that we were excavating the Tecesta. So anyway, yeah, that just keeps coming up. <laughs> I know that's a cool project. My roommate ended up becoming our best man or uh, a groomsman. A groomsman. For me. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, and we just, yeah, we, we met some really good friends on that project, like you do in long-term archaeology projects. A lot of archaeology yeah. projects aren't, like, super long. Um, but if you start seeing people at various projects, like if you stay in the same area, you get to mm-hmm. know them. But a lot of times, if you bounce around the country, kind of like we did in our first few years, I mean, you don't get to know anybody unless you really stay in a project for a while. And I can't even believe I'm going to say this right now. The CRM archaeology crew, podcast crew, would freaking kill me for saying this. But part of the reason why we got so close and is because they made us share rooms and that is so so not okay these days it is not okay to make adults share a hotel room on a project just to save money unless they are in a relationship together that is not okay but it is what they did to us and like we all became besties because we were living in each other's pockets yeah yeah i feel like i got really lucky because my friend Sean, who who I had met on the project before, he was kind of my dig buddy on a on a unit, mm-hmm. and to get show me the ropes because Sean had been doing it for a while at that point. Yeah, he's very different than me, but we're also very similar in some cases. Yeah, and it was just uh, it was it was great. I had no complaints yeah. having a share in a room with him. Yeah, you guys were good. My Until roommate he... was we were okay. Um, we're, <laughs> <laughs> we was... just were different people, and and that's yeah. fine. So, but we all but, but we we were great friends while yeah. we were there, and. Yeah, I just can't even believe I'm giving like a plug in favor of sharing rooms. But that really did help like force all of us into a great friendship. And even the people that we weren't sharing rooms with, I don't know, it... It's like because you needed to get away from the person in your room sometimes, you yeah. ended up going to hang out with other people more than maybe you would have if you could just be alone in your room. So right. anyway, yeah, it was it was a fun time. Well, let's fast forward a lot yeah. and, and jump over the highlights here. So we split ways on the end of that project as things happen. Mm-hmm. But shortly after, in the fall of that year, we kind of got back together on another project working together. And then we just started kind of staying together. And Yeah, I like it. it. I got He needed a job <laughs> and needed to get out of Vermont where it was just like wet and rainy and muddy. Yeah. So I hooked him up with the company I was working with and he came down and had nowhere to to stay in South Carolina so he he slept on my couch (laughs) and then you know never left so (laughs) then we got married five years later now now we live in a car (laughs) yeah so we live in a vehicle we live in a car in a car in a a trailer park (laughs) anyway yeah so that's how we ended up getting married and now we're still together that was in 2011 that we got married so we've been together I don't know 18 years. Something like that. If you count to the beginning. Yeah. I said fast forward. Oh yeah. Okay. Sorry. Well, we're yeah. 18 years later. Here right. we are. No. <laughs> but I want to give a little bit of our archaeological history. So yeah. we both did um, shovel bumming. It's called where you just project to project. Mm-hmm. Actually, we stayed in South Carolina for about a year, a year and a half mm-hmm. doing working for that same company. And then when we decided we didn't want to work in the Southeast anymore, we basically uh, sold both our cars and bought a Toyota 4Runner. And then mm-hmm. uh, packed everything in it that we could live in a hotel room and camping gear. Mm-hmm. And then we started working our way west uh, because you can't just unless you get lucky, 
you just typically can't just jump massive regions if you don't have experience in that region. Yeah, I we did get kind of lucky because we went to Ohio first, oh, yeah. and then the we New Mexico jumped. Mexico project was lucky. Yeah, we jumped all the way to New Mexico from Ohio, and yeah. honestly, again, it was shared hotel rooms. They weren't paying very much, and they wanted us. That this is our theory, and we're not going to say who the company was. It doesn't matter at this point. Yeah. This was twelve years ago, but. They liked us, and I'm pretty sure they hired us because we were a couple, and they could stay save the on room. yeah, we would stay in the same room and save them yeah. on a hotel cost. So yeah, and it, it was a benefit to to be that for them. So anyway, yeah. that got us to New Mexico, and then from there, that was a great project. We got to yeah. go all over the Southwest. We really found out how much we loved being in the West. I think yeah. at that point, the Southwest specifically. Well, and and if I'm not mistaken, the New Mexico project before we went there, that was our opportunity because our because Sean was subleasing our apartment I think for a little while oh, in yeah, South did, Carolina and yeah. then when our lease is up um, I think between Ohio and New Mexico that's when we got rid of the apartment and put everything in storage I think so yeah because yeah. then we we headed out near Elantra with tubs on the on the roof rubbermaid tubs yeah we the forerunner came after that I, I can't guess it did I, come after yeah that. I can't remember the, yeah. the full well whatever it doesn't matter whatever it, happened yeah. we didn't get the forerunner until we went back to South Carolina because I know we bought it there yeah we did oh I know what happened okay so Here's the timeline. <laughs> so we we did uh, we did shovel bumming in her car for a while. Yeah. And then, oh yeah, we sold your car and just we had sold mine. mine and yeah. we just had hers. Yeah. And then we were um, doing shovel bumming all over the place. And at some point, we ended up through a bunch of projects in in the West and in, in Nevada, up in Washington State uh, for the over the winter, kind of doing a project. And I had applied to grad school, and this was 2009 mm-hmm. at the University of Georgia, and I got in. Or 2008, this would have been. And I got into grad school, and then um, we found that out over the the winter there. And then eventually we moved all of our stuff back to Georgia. And then that's where we were, um, you know, Rachel kept, Rachel flew back and was doing doing work back in the West Mm -hmm. while I was in grad school. Because my grad school program was only a year. It was an accelerated program. Normally, Mm -hmm. they're two years for a master's degree. It was like summer to summer. So you had summer, fall, spring, and summer. Yeah. It was basically like two years, but crammed into one. Yeah. A lot of people... uh, and the, the, way, the way they do that is because you had to bring a research project with you, but yeah. they did have some research data sets that mm-hmm. hadn't been written up yet. So um, I didn't have to do all the archaeology. I just had to do the analysis and the write-up, right. which is mm-hmm. really what your grad school education is about. Yeah. Especially for a, a degree like this, it was a master's in archaeological resource management. So they're not, I mean, there's a lot of theory and stuff, but you don't have to go, you know, dig up some pottery site in the West or something like right, that. Right. You know, you just, you're really learning how to do your thesis and the research and the theory and stuff like yeah, that. Yeah. So anyway, after grad school, we went back to Nevada. That was long, your grad school, not that me. That was my grad school. I'm just a lowly field tech uh, with just a yeah. bachelor's degree. And I still am. And I'm okay with that. I don't know how I do it. <laughs> but uh, anyway. Yeah. Anyway, yeah, so then we went back to Nevada, and we still kept on doing CRM, and I started my own company, DigTech, in uh, 2011 or 12, something like that, mm-hmm. and then not long after that, I started, or maybe even before that, I think before I started my company, I started the CRM Archaeology Podcast, Yeah, and uh, and eventually, I mean, I kept doing archaeology. You kind of went another path after a little while. I did. I worked in like customer service, and... Um, order picking, I guess you could call it order fulfillment for yeah. a yarn company. Cause I think I've talked about this before on the podcast, but I'm a, I'm big into knitting. I love knitting 
anything really. And yeah. I design patterns on the side too for, for knitting. That's if you follow me on from the show notes, that goes to my knitting profile basically, which is all the knitting stuff that I do. Yeah. So, which I very rarely post on. So probably don't go follow me there. But right. <laughs> anyway, so that's what I was doing for like eight years. I worked for them and I got a totally different skill set there, you know, leaving, I just was like burnt out on shovel bumming. It was a lot. You're always moving, yeah. always it's just constant moving and you never feel like you're making enough money. So yeah. like, it's just like such a drag after a while, at least it was for me back then. So I moved into this job in Reno where I didn't have to move so much working with yarn, which is my second love, mm-hmm. you know, I loved it. So that was great for a while, but then I left it when like right before COVID happened separately, yeah. separate from COVID, not because of it. It was a planned thing that I had been doing, but then COVID did happen. And all of my skill sets came together, if you like. <laughs> so I wasn't working at first, but then Wild Note, which is who I'm currently working for, which is a a um, field data recording software. You know them because you worked for them for a little while yeah. too, and they knew that I was looking for work and that I had customer service experience from my time working in the yarn industry. So it's like all my skills came together. So now I get to talk to archaeologists mm-hmm. about the work they're doing and help them figure out how to use WildNote, the app, to record right. that data in the field. So it's like this perfect mixture of my skill sets, which is what I'm doing right now, and I freaking love it. So it's great. <laughs> and in the meantime, right after you quit that job, it I mean, it was during during COVID, I think we did our first year, that big tra- project out in Eastern Nevada. Oh, yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Cause, that cause was we the bought last our bit of field work that we've done. Yeah. Yeah. Because we bought our RV and then used it for that field work. In before you quit that job, um, I was, again, I had projects and occasionally you were able to find some time and they would let you go uh, yeah. to come work with me on those. So you kind of kept your toe in archaeology a little bit. Yeah. But I kept doing the field work and stuff like that. And eventually... I mean, you mentioned I worked with WildNote. I actually brought archaeology to WildNote yeah. because I was I was actually working with another company before that. Mm-hmm. And that relationship, I didn't like where the company was going. That relationship kind of soured a little bit just because we weren't happy with the directions. Mm-hmm. And then I knew about WildNote uh, through some other things because I'd actually interviewed them on a podcast on, on yeah. an episode because I yeah. knew about their field data recording software. And then they brought me down to San Luis Obispo and we talked about archaeology. And yeah. now they're doing archaeology. But before that... I actually had an investor and a partner, and we were working on building our own field data collection app. But turns out you can't do that with just $50,000. It costs <laughs> way more than that. A lot more. <laughs> yeah. And then before that, I was actually developing my own archaeology site forms through a third-party application that was mm-hmm. available that allowed some really good form building stuff. That and, and I was actually selling occasionally, not much, but those forms that I would build mm-hmm. through that software. Yeah. So, yeah, you've been um, in the digital... Yeah. Field collection, field data collection world, like for a really long time, well, way, way ahead of the rest yeah. of the industry for sure. And this kind of goes to where we're at now. I kind of get bored of field work. Yeah. Field work is fun. It, you get to hike, you get to go out yeah. and do stuff. But in the end, it's like, where's my intellectual stimulation here? Yeah. It's just like, it's kind of all the same thing over and over and over and over again. Yeah. And a lot and, of finding nothing, which right. is, it, it, which is important for archaeology. You have yeah. to find nothing to, to show when you do find something, the importance of it, you know? Yeah. And yeah. a lot of people love this lifestyle. Yeah. They love just oh, doing yeah. that. It's great for yeah. people. Yeah. So, um, but I just, I needed more. So yeah. I, that's why I started doing all the digital stuff and then really focusing on other types of things in the archaeology podcast network, like the archaeo, like the archaeotech podcast. Yeah. Um, and we got kind of glossed over that. I started the archaeology podcast network nine years ago, nine years ago. Mm-hmm. And that's going strong. So, uh, yeah. So, 
I had this co-working space in Reno where I had an office just because I needed a space away from home because I was Rachel was at work all day and I was at home alone and I just wanted people to talk to and you know do that kind of thing. So I had this co-working space and eventually I had an office mate that worked for this company that was doing something completely different. It was similar to WildNote in what I was doing in form creation and, and project design and stuff like that and mm-hmm. just doing these sort of things. It's data entry. It's data yeah. entry, and but creating the space for the data entry. Mm-hmm. And But it was for a completely different industry, and so I started doing that. And mm-hmm. now, now I'm kind of doing that full-time. Yeah. Uh, and then the Archaeology Podcast Network is also what I'm doing full-time mm-hmm. uh, with all the producing and stuff like that. Although so. I do all the editing for it these days, do. which yeah. has worked pretty well. So... If uh, if you notice anything weird in any of our podcasts, editing wise, fault. it's my fault. Tell me, but tell me yeah. because I am trying to improve. I'm not as good as Chris, but mm-hmm. I'm getting better, I think, with with time and yeah. experience. So, yeah. Yeah, that's pretty much where we're at now. Yeah. We're, we're trying to develop a few things on the side. I don't want to work for this other company forever. Mm-hmm. Got some other things I want to do. Mm-hmm. Um, as, as the podcast network grows, honestly, that's yeah. the direction we'd like to go. But Yeah, podcasting you know, is... So become a member. I know, I know. The membership really yeah. helps us to like gain independence and do this full time. Yeah. And it's just so fun. Like This is... This is why I became an archaeologist is to talk about really freaking cool stories like the the saddle or the mm-hmm. cave paintings. And I know we're we're do, coming at it from a surface level, but it's just so fun. And this is yeah. we love sharing this information. And it's the kind of archaeology that we're enjoying doing now. Well, and I'm not trying to I didn't intend to do this when we started talking about the segment. But I will tell you, with more memberships, you know, we, we have 100 members. You know, and we don't really promote it that much and it kind of fluctuates. Some yeah. people drop off. Some people we get new ones. But um, if we had a thousand members out of the million people that listened to our shows last year, we could do so much. Yeah. Right. And we want to go around to archaeological sites in this country and abroad and interview people in the in the field and doing things like that. Yeah, but there's just sure. no funding for that. Yeah. So yeah. we have some possible things coming up this year that we're not talking about yet because we don't know about they're going to happen but mm-hmm. we might be being sent to other places in the world to do things which is really cool mm-hmm. but we're not paying for that and no. that doesn't happen very often it's just kind of random that it's that it's taking place maybe yeah and it's still a very big maybe but yeah i'll tell you what these these little memberships that cost you as much as a starbucks as a coffee latte, yeah <laughs> um, really help us it out helps to get these us things done. so much yeah yeah, yeah so. for sure all right well with that we will uh See you guys next week. Thanks. Bye. Thanks for listening to The Archaeology Show. Feel free to comment and view the show notes on the website at www.archpodnet.com. Find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at ArcPodNet. Music for this show is called I Wish You Would Look from the band Sea Hero. Again, thanks for listening and have an awesome day. This episode was produced by Chris Webster from his RV traveling the United States, Tristan Boyle in Scotland, DigTech LLC, Cultural Media, and the Archaeology Podcast Network, and was edited by Chris Webster. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com.